passage we're looking at tonight is James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Just a little note. I'm going to teach it this way in just a, in a few minutes, but when he says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, I think the sin that he is specifically referring to here is the flip side of verse 12, the first verse in the paragraph, which is enduring. It's the flip side. It is not enduring. We would call it apostasy or throwing in the towel of commitment to Jesus. It is desire. I'm going to live for myself. That ends up giving birth to, I don't need Jesus. That ends up giving birth eventually to eternal death what he's describing. So don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, verse 16. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of the Father's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He gave birth to us by the gospel, so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James, in the first 11 verses, refers to how you deal with trials, how you need wisdom for relationships, skill in relationships, and how you need to view your poverty, your, your, your socioeconomic status. And he says, rejoice in what God is doing through your trials. Rejoice that God's going to give you the wisdom, the skill you need to keep on loving others, even though you yourself are are going through hardship. And lastly, rejoice that your poverty doesn't define you. James, of course, is writing to Jews who, because of persecution, have had their homes taken away from them, and they've been dispersed. They're part of the dispersion, according to verse 1. They've been dispersed as refugees in other places. They're far away from home. You can imagine if you lost your home, you lost your job, you lost your savings, you lost your family, you lost your dignity, and you're out in a place where you're forming new relationships and you feel completely disconnected, you'd be tempted in a lot of ways. I mean, this is severe, severe trials. So in the middle of hardships, James knows that Christians are strongly tempted to get mad at God, to get bitter, suspicious, cynical, rather than rejoicing in what God's doing through our trials. He also knows that Christians are prone to selfishness toward others and envy of others. So he continues to lovingly and directly shepherd struggling Christians through these common temptations. In the passage we look at tonight, he returns again to the first burden of how to handle trials. And he actually uses some of the exact same words. He had said in verses 2, 3, and 4 that believers should count it all joy when they go through all kinds of tests. And here, 
In verses 12 to 18, he returns to the theme and challenges every Christian to get something straight. Christians are prone to temptation, but our God is only good. Going a bit further, in times of testing, our only and always good God is sovereign over all our testings. But we ourselves are responsible for any time we give in to temptations. In other words, God's sovereign over our trials, but he is not to blame when, in the middle of our trials, we give in to cynicism, selfishness, envy. No, that's, that's on us. Our God is good, and he's in control of our trials, and we need to keep trusting him through our trials. And when we experience temptation in the trials, don't blame God. Take responsibility. It's the only way forward. So I, I call this lesson tonight, When Testing Transitions to Temptation. And I put a bold heading there at the bottom of the page, Beware of Testings That Become Tempting, because it strikes right at the root of what James is doing. He's actually doing it with a play on words. He plays on the word test in verses 12 and 13. Although it's basically the same root word that's translated trial in verse 12 and tempted in verse 13. One is a noun, the other is a verb. It's like saying he played the play. Same word, one's a noun, one's a verb. In verse 12, the word test refers to a period of testing that our only good God allows. And in verse 13, it refers to being tempted in that time of testing. It is a crucial distinction that James is making. It is absolutely critical to receive testing from the hand of God. But when we're undergoing that testing and experiencing temptation, we don't blame God for our temptations. He's making a critical distinction. So often when we're in the tough season and we give in to the temptation to be joyless, have a bad attitude, We excuse it. We basically say it's God's fault. God has put me in this situation. I can't have a good attitude. James knows that we often rationalize this way. When we're going through a rough season, we often try to rationalize away our self-focus. I can't focus on other people right now. I tell people I don't have the bandwidth right now to be able to handle any other responsibilities. Right? And we can really rationalize our distance from other people whom God calls us to love. Because of all my trials. I've got it so difficult right now. I can't love like he's called me to love. I can't be with those people right now. I can't tolerate them right now. That kind of thing. We blame it on God. But James urges followers of Jesus not to give in to such temptations and especially not to blame God for our bad choices. He knows that there's a path that leads from bitterness to self-focus to envy to defection or what we looked at two weeks ago in in, uh, John 15. Deconversion. That is, Jesus is saying, abide, remain, continue, stay put. The opposite of which is, disconnect yourself from Jesus. Fall away from Jesus. Don't stay put. Leave him. In our newspapers today, it's called deconversion. Where people claim to be a Christian for a certain period of time, and then they say, I'm throwing in the towel. Um, James is warning that there is a path that leads from selfishness to walking away from Jesus. He doesn't want Christians to walk down that path that ends in apostasy. 
Instead, he urges us to remain steadfast under every trial, knowing that those who persevere in in commitment to Jesus, those who endure, will be crowned with eternal life. In other words, it's not like, according to verse 12, blessed are those who endure under trial because they'll receive the crown of life. James is not thinking there are Christians who endure and Christians who don't endure, right? Every Christian who endures inherits life. That means the very definition of a Christian is someone who endures in commitment to Jesus. If you don't endure, you're not a Christian. You endure, you experience life, you're crowned with life. You don't endure, you follow the process that he describes of desire, giving birth to sin, which is the sin of apostasy or or throwing in the towel, and that leads to death. Christians endure. By contrast, those who don't persevere, but instead give up on following Jesus, face eternal death. And it might be helpful to read Hebrews 10, which is a much more extended warning of uh, falling away. James offers two encouragements to help in time of testing. The first one, remember your sinfulness. And the second one, remember God's goodness. Beware of your own heart. James challenges us first to take time and consider what we're like and how different we are from God by nature. We can be tempted to selfishness. God can't be. Sometimes people hear that God seeks his own glory. You know, the whole point of life is the glory of God. And people hear that and they say, whoa, God must be the most selfish megalomaniac in the world. That's Richard Dawkins' view. They think he's selfish. Nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that God is God. He's unique. That's what we mean when we say he's holy. There is no one like him, no one like him, no one like him. He is in a category all his own. He's great. He's all-powerful. For him to know that he is God, or to seek to show us that he is God, isn't arrogant or ambitious. He's God, right? It's the most accurate, truthful thing in the world for him to say, you need to know that I am God. That's not selfish. It would be horrible if any of us tried to say that. It is accurate for the one true God to say that. Further, God's plan for human history is to showcase just how gracious he is, right? Which means that when God shows off, I get lavishly loved, God is never filled with sinful anger. He's never cruel to others. He never envies others. God's dealings are always good, just, right. They're always appropriate. God is not selfish. God is good. The fact is, God can't be tempted. And he can't tempt us. We, on the other hand, have inclinations or desires that lure and entice us. James really uses grotesque, vivid terms here. He uses the term of conceiving, giving birth to, and then giving birth to, like this multi-generational, nasty family situation. He describes how selfish desires lure us away from commitment to God, and it's basically like we commit adultery on God by giving into our selfish desires. 
we cheat on God, which is very much what James says in chapter 4. His concern with his audience is that they are cheating on God. They're living for themselves when God made them to live for God. And in that spiritual adultery, a conception takes place, and sin is born. It's almost like you're cheating on God, and you have a child out of wedlock. And that child is named leaving God. Sin, the sin of apostasy, falling away. You cheat on God, you say, I'm going to live for me rather than God, and a pregnancy happens. And what comes is leaving God. And that child ends up growing up and giving birth to a child that's name is eternal death. That's James's imagery. It's a grotesque use of language. In order to help us rightly think about walking away from Jesus, right? The Bible often uses grotesque depictions of things that are in fact grotesque that we should say, God, help me not to give in to my selfishness. We look at this and we say, God, I need to take seriously when I get bitter at you. God, I need to get serious when I look and I think the grass is greener on the other side. I need to take really serious when I say, I know you've called me to love those people, but I'm going to prefer to be in isolation because I can't take one more person right now. I need to take seriously my desires to be selfish rather than to live for you, God. James uses this grotesque imagery to say, those desires are not desires that you want to give in to. They go really, really bad places. He's, uh, of course, emphasizing that there is a path that begins with selfish desire and it eventually results in giving up on Jesus. And that's why he says, verse 16, do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Selfishness is moving in a direction, and that direction is away from God, away from Christ. You keep walking down that path, and you will not be pleased with the next generation what happens a decade down the road. That's really helpful counsel. We need to be very cautious of our sinfulness, of our self-centeredness. And then secondly, he says, remember God's goodness. Verses 17 and 18, these should be like banners for our lives. It's the kind of verse that you should have like in your, in your entryway or in your kitchen. Like, like every good gift is from above because this verse is intended to reorient us in all the hardships of life. This verse is meant to reorient us. It is a remarkably beautiful verse. It's helpful, it's simple, and it reminds us that God is good. He's only good. He only gives good gifts. It reminds us that he's the mighty creator, sun, moon, and stars. That even better than the stars, which can be eclipsed, and which from our perspective slightly change position every night, God is unchanging in the light of his pure goodness. It's a beautiful expression that God is only and always good that really needs to control our outlook on life, especially when life's hard. And I think it has basically four components when I try to say this is how I need to think about God and unpack verses 17 and 18. I come up with these four things. First, the attitude that characterizes our lives must reflect that our God is only and always good. In other words, verse 17 
should impact my attitude. When life's hard, we're going to be tempted to think, why, God, did you bring me into this mess? Why are you allowing this tragedy? God, I thought you were leading me. I thought you loved me. But we can't interpret God's character based on our circumstances. We need to interpret our circumstances based on what we know about God. He's only and always good. And James says that the brilliant light of God's goodness is actually brighter, purer, and more constant than the sun. It's awesome. This should affect our attitude. In other words, in the middle of trials, this should produce joy. God, you're only good. No matter what I'm going through, you're only and always good. It should affect our attitude. Second, when we're at a low point and need proof of God's goodness, we should look no further than ourselves. The best example of God's goodness is that he chose to save each of us. James shifts from verse 17 to verse 18. God is good. Of his own will, he caused you to be born again with the gospel. He teaches that the most brilliant display of God's goodness is his desire to give us new life through the gospel. He wanted a selfish rebel like me to be saved. I need to remember that. That's why he provided his son to bear the punishment that I justly deserve for all of my rebellion. And that's why he worked in our hearts, in my heart, to bring me to fear hell and long for heaven and to hate my sin and be convinced that Jesus is better than a life of rebellion. He did it. He wanted me to turn from my self-centeredness and entrust myself to Jesus because he's good. Why would God do something like that for me? I don't deserve it at all. I've spurned him 10,000 times. He did it because he's good. He wanted to. That's incredible. If you're struggling to say, God, are you really good in, in, in my life? It really looks like there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence against that. Remember that God wanted to save you. He wanted to give you a son. He wanted to turn your heart and bring you to life through the gospel. Third, we must count the good gifts we've received from God until we're overwhelmed. It says every good, per- good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. And this really challenges me to count the gifts. What are all of the good and perfect gifts? Well, life is full of good gifts from God. It's not just salvation. That is the greatest gift. But creation, food. Have you enjoyed good food today? How about health? Good gift. Gifts of work, business, business transactions, money, rest, sleep, love, marriage, children, family, community, politics, friendship, home, gardening, cooking, pets, language, learning, technology, sports, music, holidays. Life's full of good gifts. Incredible gifts. Each of these gifts was originally created by God to be perfect, very good. It's only since the fall and curse on creation that these gifts, every one of them, has been tainted with sorrow. Every one of them is shot through with sin in some way. Yet, we should still receive every good gift from our good God with thankfulness. It's the way to live. 
We experience even gifts that have sorrow mixed up in them, like work. It's difficult. We say, thank you, God, for a job. Health that is unstable. Thank you, God, for the health that I have today. Marriage, which comes along with many challenges. Thank you, God, for my marriage. Sports. Thank you, God, for Sunday football. It starts this week. Yeah, it's a good gift. It's a diversion. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's fascinating. It, it's a good gift. It's not perfect. Shot through with sin, this side of the curse. Thank God for it nonetheless. Food. We struggle with food. We should thank God for food, right? Struggle with food because we're sinners. And every food has different properties to it that basically is going to one day kill us, right? (laughs) All you have to do is read newspapers, right? And today they're saying, coffee's good for you. And tomorrow they're saying, coffee's going to kill you. And then you read like, eggs. Do you realize how bad they are for your heart? And then you read the next day and they're like, eggs are the best thing you could have every morning. You know, it's just like back and forth, back and forth. These are good gifts that aren't perfect. We're on this side of the curse and we're waiting for creation to be renewed. But we are to receive them with thankfulness. There are so many gifts that God created very good and we should receive them with thankfulness. Then lastly, we should remember that every trial we'll ever encounter is actually a good gift from God. This is how it fits into the logic of the whole passage. James is saying every good gift comes from God because he's talking to people who are under trials and needing to remain steadfast, right? So if God is God and he's only and always good, then we can consider every trial in our lives to be God's good gift for our good. And during our hardships, we can be certain that God designs them to strengthen, purify, and mature us. And that's how we can endure them with joy. We've got to remember that we are prone to walking away from God in our trials. That our trials become a lure for our selfishness to say, I need to live for me. We need to confess that. We need to get off that trail, get off that path, get out of that relationship. And we need to say, God, you are good only good, always good, and I am going to trust you in my trials and by your grace remain steadfast.